Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Hex 2.0 was released with a new version resolver. So Eric Meadows Johnson shared a little bit of insight into this. He says he's really excited about this release, even though there are no new features that we would notice. But he's excited because they worked on the new version resolver, and they've been doing this for a long time. And it's fixing some long-standing performance issues. And also he noted that the resolver is released as its own package so that other build tools can use it by itself. That could be interesting. So uh, in their own words, they say that the biggest change in 2.0 is the introduction of the new version solver called Hex Solver. The version solver for the package manager needs to be able to find the latest versions of a set of compatible packages that do not violate the user's specified version requirements for each package. You know, everything you put in your depths, right? It needs to be able to finish in a reasonable amount of time. I think that was the biggest complaint they had. And if the version uh, solving fail it, it needs to display a clear message that explains why it failed. All right, end of quote. So I think this will be a good release. They worked on it for a long time, but I think they also hesitated for 2.0 because uh, they wanted to make sure that older Elixir versions would continue to be supported. Uh, I, I can't remember how far back, but it's early Elixir stuff, right? That Hex supports. And so the 2.0 breaking change there is is to give them some room to be able to use uh, newer Elixir features. And then they're going to continue patching security stuff in, in older Hex 1.x kind of stuff. But focus will be on 2.0 going forward. This Hex solver algorithm that they're using, I, I don't think it's homegrown, but it's based on the algorithm that's actually used in Dart's packager called a pub.dev. This, this algorithm is called pubgrub. So we've got a link that goes uh, to explain what PubGrub does differently, but it's that's pretty cool, right? So like there's another <laughs> major ecosystem, language ecosystem out there that's already using this and seems to have good results. So pretty cool that we've uh, we've adopted that. I haven't had a chance to try this out, but I do know from the past experience, sometimes when I would be trying to update a package and Hex would be telling me that, oh, you can't do that because there's these version conflicts, sometimes it's rather cryptic, and it took me a while to try and figure out what actually was keeping this and blocking me from being able to update something. Where they mentioned here that, you know, trying to display a clear message that explains why it failed, I'm hopeful that uh, there might be something there that uh, improves that experience. Yeah, yeah, I haven't tried this out. So I'm, I'm curious to see what the if there's any noticeable changes I have run into every once in a while. And I don't even know if I can reproduce it, but every once in a while, uh, yeah, it would seem to freeze when I was trying to pull down dependencies, usually when I'm trying to do like hex.updateall or something. that was never able to pin it down, but I think uh, the, the new hex solver is supposed to fix that, that issue. Erlang Certify 2.10.0 was updated with a new SSL certificates bundle. If you're curious what this means, here's a quote. This Erlang library contains a CA bundle that you can reference in your Erlang applications. This is useful for systems that do not have CA bundles that Erlang can find itself or where a uniform set of CAs is valuable. And CAs there is certificate authorities. So this is when you're wanting to verify certificates were signed correctly or something like that. And I think this might be most helpful when you're dealing with embedded systems or something like that where there's not a CA bundle available on the operating system. Or I know like Mozilla, the browser for Firefox, it includes its own CA bundle. 
And that can have benefits and drawbacks, you know, depending on what you're trying to do. So this might be something that some library authors would want to refer to and, and use. But I just thought it was good to note that this was updated. Also up, we got a new Broadway update. A new version of the Google Cloud PubSub adapter was released. And so uh, a couple of folks chimed in on, on what it, what this means. We got Jose Valim. He let people know that it migrated to Finch, the HTTP uh, adapter, which means that it's not necessarily a straightforward upgrade, <laughs> but it should also bring better performance. And then uh, Joel Adev said uh, that there's a pretty significant fix on how it pulls messages. So in production, they're seeing improved performance, no more lost messages during shutdown and faster shutdowns. Looks like a great update. If you're using Broadway and Google Cloud PubSub, you should probably very seriously consider upgrading. And next up, Vegalite, the graphing library used in Livebook, was updated to add support for binning, scaling, and other color schemes. And the way this shows up is in a smart cell when you're using little options to tweak and adjust how you want a, a graph to be displayed. So that's really cool that this was uh, done by contributions and more improvements in Livebook. Speaking of Livebook, we saw Alex Koopmos tweet a GIF of a work in progress upload smart cell for Livebook. We'll share a link in the show notes to that GIF, but it could be pretty helpful. I like all the improvements that are coming to Livebook. I can imagine dragging and dropping things like CSV files, Excel files into Livebook could be extremely helpful. Yeah, people were identifying that this could be really helpful if you're trying to do the advent of code and they give you some file that you're supposed to process and, oh, now you can upload that directly into Livebook. Because <laughs> that's important, you know, you got to have the advent of code advantage. This is important. <laughs> Dave Lucia got timescale DB working in Livebook too. This implies that some Livebook readmes and, you know, little getting started guides and uh, that are hosted on Hex uh, will be easier to get timescale running. And rounding out the Livebook updates, Sean Moriarty wrote 15 Livebook guides that go deeper into some of Axon's APIs. So these guides are really targeted at people who already know something about machine learning. So it's not your intro to machine learning. He said he's trying to work on that separately, but that this is perhaps a great resource for people who already have some knowledge and understanding and they want to just figure out how do I apply that and map that to Elixir and Axon. So that's a, a nice resource to put together 15 guides there. A fun blog post came out written by Chris McCord on the fly blog talking about how you might spin down a Phoenix application when it's idle. This is an interesting concept and could potentially save yourself some money when you're if you're running on an infrastructure that allows you to shut services down. So we'll drop a link in the show notes. It's a pretty cool idea. All right, there's a new blog post out by New Relic that goes into Erlang's Observer. So if you haven't heard or remembered what Observer is. Observer is a great tool that's built into the Beam. It's a little application that will pop up and show you all the statistics of your running Beam system, memory uh, reductions, how much CPU is being taken up, that kind of stuff. So if you've ever wondered how to use it to troubleshoot and debug those, those nasty issues like memory issues, that nice blog post by uh, Matt Baker, hosts on the New Relic blog here, is pretty cool. I, I like it. It's like how to debug is always like a, uh, uh, something that you have to kind of take from experience because <laughs> these problems are pretty unique to folks uh, so they or they can be unique. So it's really great to see like how other people debug. So this new Relic post is a great example of that. So you should go check it out. And we wanted to mention that if you're listening to this podcast, you might listen to other podcasts too. 
So I wanted to let you know that Jose Valim was the guest on a another podcast called Software Unscripted, where he talked about introducing static types to Elixir. So if you're interested in following that story of static types possibly coming to Elixir, it's a good option to check out. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. A new batch of Elixir Conf 2022 videos have been released. Not all of them are out yet, but it looks like the ones that were given remotely are now up, including some of the lightning talks. So we'll drop a link to that YouTube channel for you to check them out. All right, Elixir Conf Uruguay is about to happen. So a reminder, this is an in-person and a virtual conference. So there's two days of workshop and one day of a speaker lineup. The speaker lineup is speaking on November 12th. So that's really around the corner. Uh, you should go check it out. They have really an incredible lineup of, of folks. You've got folks from Mimiquite there. You've got the CTO from the Yworks there. You've got good friend Todd Rezidek there, assistant professor that's uh, speaking there. Really, <laughs> really good lineup. Uh, Andrea Leopardi and, of course, Jose Valim. I, I remember saying before that uh, ElixirConf US is the premier ElixirConf, but... Uh, you know, that's not always true. <laughs> the, the Uruguay one is going to be really cool. Uh, so I'm excited to see the good talks out of there. And that's it for the news. This episode is brought to you by Fly.io. You know, LiveView has been a game changer for how we build interactive web applications. When you deploy your application physically closer to your users, the experience is even better. That's what Fly.io lets you do. Easily deploy your apps around the world like people do with CDNs. What's more, Elixir and Fly.io feel like they were made for each other. It's so easy to set up clustered applications across data centers. Fly.io has over 20 regions around the world ready for your app. The secure WireGuard network means you can securely do cross-region PubSub with Phoenix. So many things become possible now that were just so hard before. Check out Fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today we're being joined by our special guest, Carlos Bolaños. Carlos, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me, guys. Glad to be here. Well, Carlos, I'm glad that you're able to join us because I saw that you had this library that was created called Nebulex, and it was described as an in-memory and distributed caching toolkit for Elixir. And when I was checking out the code and the samples, I was like, wow, this is really interesting. I would love to learn more about how this works, the design philosophy behind it. And there's a lot of plugins to different types of caching. So it's like, wow, there, there's some lot of thought and work that's gone into this. I really want to understand where this is coming from. Is there a company behind this? All that stuff, I think it'll be really fun to dig into. But before we go there, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Sure. So um, right now I'm based in uh, uh, Barcelona, Spain. I moved here uh, for work purposes three years ago, but I'm uh, originally from Colombia. And uh, during the last three years, as actually, I've been involved on um, several projects, uh, several companies, uh, especially on the car hailing with a car hailing uh, company based on Africa. They run a kind of an Uber, but with motorcycles and all that stuff. Uh, that has been super cool for me because it was like a very new industry for me, a very new thing. Also, I had the chance to, to work with a local company uh, in Barcelona. And this one is very special because it was completely different uh, to what they had, uh, I had done uh, before. Uh, the company is basically in the GNSS domain, the uh, global uh, navigation satellite systems to uh, building high accuracy positioning systems and so on. 
And they decided to actually use Elixir and Rust. And uh, so that uh, it, it was it was very fun. So yeah, that basically, uh, and, and of course, um, some other projects related to fintech. Actually, I've seen during the last years how uh, different companies in, in fintech um, have adopted Elixir for implementing their, their backends and so on. That's, that's also cool. I love the idea of motorcycle version of Uber. <laughs> it's kind of fun. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, different markets have different needs. That's very cool. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, in there, in uh, actually the company, it's uh, the name of the company is Safe Bora. Uh, it's uh, located in Uganda, in Kampala, and people actually the main transportation mean is is the motorcycles. Uh, believe it or not, this is not actually the cars. Uh, in car, is you take a lot of time to to get to to your destination. So basically, the co-founders realized that there was like a good opportunity there. And in several countries of Africa, happens the same thing. Uh, motorcycle is uh, probably the, the main transportation. I, m- I remember the little uh, mini bus depots there in, in Zimbabwe. I remember there, yeah, it was like a, a big empty, you know, dirt lot. And there would be a bunch of these little VW mini buses that would pull up. And they had like areas of the of the lot that they would be in. So you'd have like five over here in this group and five over there in that group. And they'd be going to different parts of the city. <laughs> so I always felt like a little chaotic coming, having no experience before getting into one of those things. But uh, it was it was quite a different experience, but obviously like worked and efficient. They will leave you. I mean, I guess everyone will, every transportation place will leave you if you're not there on time, but it was just just cramming folks into the vans. It was cool. So Carlos, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about how you came to Elixir. Like how long have you been doing Elixir? Yeah. So actually I started working with Elixir like probably 10 to 11 years ago. Well, actually 10, 11 years ago with Erlang, because I actually came from, from Erlang. I came across with Erlang first. And then when I started, when I joined Erlang Solutions, uh, I also started my journey with Elixir. That was in, uh, in 2015. So it has been like probably seven years uh, also working with Elixir. So yeah, before that, I was doing Java for a lot of years. And actually, in the very, very beginning of my career, I was doing a lot of C and C++, uh, working with, with telecommunications, basically. So let's jump into this, this library that you've created. You call it Nebulex. So what, what is this? And, and tell us a little bit more about it. Overall, Nebulex is a sort of um, toolkit or framework uh, for catching. And basically to address uh, the following things. Uh, first of all was uh, the ability to have a kind of abstraction layer for caching. Because in the same way, you don't want to be attached to a particular repository or database. Uh, same happened with the, with the cache. And actually it's more frequent that you change your cache rather than your database, for example. That was uh, probably the, the main motivation, having this kind of uh, like an abstract layer, uh, like an API. And for that, Nebulex is highly inspired by Ecto. The idea wasn't to reinvent the wheel here. So uh, I basically took a lot of, of, of Ecto implementation, how they, they made the, the, the abstraction layer, the adapters, and so on. So I, I wanted something similar, but for, for catching. So the second thing was also providing a different catching patterns out of the box. Uh, like, for example, things like read through, write through, uh, catch as a system, a system of record and so on. All these things, uh, basically out of the box. 
And finally, also uh, crafting the distributed caching topologies. I remember uh, back in the days when I listened, for example, Cameron Porting. Cameron Porting was one of the main guys that started uh, talking about distributed topologies. Uh, this guy basically created Coherence, which is now one of the main products in, in Oracle. And it was very interesting because it's uh, basically it gives a kind of a, an idea about the different uh, topologies that uh, we may have with the, with the cache, like a partitioned cache, a replicated cache, near cache, which is a kind of a multi-layer cache when you have like a L1 for local cache and L2 for maybe like a distributed cache, maybe L3 is your database or something like that, right? So that was the, the other motivation. I said, okay, that it would be very nice to, to have something that allows me to, to implement that kind of things relatively easy you know, instead of building from everything from scratch. So, so yeah, that's basically what Nebulix is, is the, the abstraction layer, uh, catching patterns as well as a, a, um, let's say a set of utilities for crafting distributed topologies. So this whole time, I'm just wondering. Where did the name come from, Nebulix? <laughs> yeah. yeah, actually, I mean that that's funny. When I when I started with Nebulix, I remember that in Erlang there was um, a library a, a very very used, which is Epoxy. I don't know if you guys have heard about it, but Epoxy was also a library. I don't remember the author, uh, but uh, I mean it was very popular, and actually it's also like a set of patterns uh, with ETS tables. And one of the, those patterns was the catch. And the catch was implemented using a kind of a generational cache. So I started to think, okay, but it would be nice to, to provide some kind of building. Because if I'm going to, to provide a framework or a toolkit, it would be also nice to at least provide like a building implementation. So since I've used uh, the epoxy catch before and, and it was something that works very, very well. And actually in Erlang community, I think that a lot of companies use it. So, um, okay, I'm going to implement a sort of a, a generational ca ca catching uh, based on epoxy. So generations comes to me in, uh, in this idea of, the, of creating like a new generations of the catch with a lot of data inside. And it's uh, how much, how the nebula behaves, you know, that it's producing all the time, like a new stars and, and so on, new generations of stars. So yeah, I said, okay, let's, let's put it nebulix. And also because, uh, in the end, it, it sounds like a, I don't know, it sounds uh, nice for me. So I said, okay, let's. Well, it's got the EX too. Uh, yeah, so exactly. Obviously that works. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, so yeah, this is where the name comes from. Well, one of the things that strikes me is that you're talking about like these multiple strategies and multiple backends. It sounds like, okay, there's a lot of work that went into this, a lot of thought. And I'm just wondering, did this come out of a project at work or you're like, you know, just from experience, I know this is a general problem and I just want to go deep on a general problem. Like where really, what was the motivation for creating this and going so far with all the customization? Actually, since I started very early in my career working with this kind of uh, distributed high-performance systems, uh, actually in the, in the telcos, uh, that was uh, pretty much like a, like an it. So the catch uh, or the catching was one of the first thing that I came across with. I started learning a lot of, uh, about it. And if you see the catch is one of the, it's super simple thing, not in, in terms of implementation, but in terms of adoption, because implementation, it's, uh, it could be very, quite very challenging, uh, but also it's very powerful. 
So you can actually boost or, or get the uh, improve the performance significantly only uh, if you adopt uh, the catch in, in, in a good way. So since the very beginning, I faced this challenging when I had to involve a catch for improve something. And actually, when, when it's a good practice when you are designing your system and the data you are going to work with, okay, but what kind of data we can also put in, in the catch? Because that also helps you to identify that data and, and maybe come up with a better design for it. So, yeah, during the, uh, several years, actually, as I mentioned before, I started with C, then Java. And in Java, it was very nice because, you know, I mean, Java is a super large, large community. So there were a lot of frameworks and tools there, like Spring, Spring Catching, and also we had the JCA interface, of course. When I started with, uh, with Elixir and actually with Erlang, I saw that th there was something missing. I felt that it, there was something missing. We have uh, good caching libraries like CacheX, ConCatch, and so on. But I still felt like, okay, something is missing here. Uh, I used to have in, in, in the Java world something like a framework that allows me to actually play with adapters and having this kind of idiomatic way also to, to work with the caches and so on. So I think that this is like a very good opportunity to maybe contribute the community and, and, and do something additionally. It, it was, the, the idea never was, for example, provide another catch because actually CacheX was already there and I think it's great. So, but instead was something uh, that complements that, you know, something that you can actually configure uh, or use any other, uh, or implement your adapter and use the, the, the catch you, you want and, and so on. So it was basically, yeah, inspired by that, uh, the, the need of uh, several times during my work implementing catching, catching. And when I started with Erlang, I basically, I had to do the same work over and over and over again. So once I started with Elixir, I said, okay, it's time maybe to, to grab all these uh, learnings, uh, patterns that I've implemented in the past uh, several times, and let's put it into kind of a framework like, uh, for example, the Java community uh, did something similar. I think it's helpful to understand what this looks like. You know, if you, dear listener, are, are familiar with a caching layer like CacheX or anything like that, or you work directly with ETS, the way you do this looks very different, right? You're using like decorator functions to decorate that, oh, I want, this is the function that I want to make cacheable, that the result will be cached. And if maybe I can check in the cache first before I execute the function even. So it's it's a very different metaprogramming-esque kind of thing. It's not necessarily the, I'm going to write the code to go check the cache and then do something or or directly write something to the cache. It's a little bit more hands-off and you just kind of decorate that you say, hey, this is something that should be cached. So talk a little bit about the API for using this and and the, and why you chose this. That was one of the of the features that I added. I think it was in the version two, but it wasn't there in the in the, in the very beginning. Actually, you can use uh, Nebulex without the decorators. You can just use the, the API. But yeah, I thought that uh, and the idea actually was uh, taken from a Spring Catch. In a Spring Catch, uh, again in the Java, you had this uh, idiomatic way to define your your objects, in this case, your module, and tag your functions somehow to say, hey, I want this to be catched, I want this to be evicted, and so on. 
And the idea, again, if, if remember when I mentioned the, 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 the motivations of, of Nebulex, one of them was implementing the, the patterns. And if you see, those are catching patterns, like the read-through and write-through catch, which is something that we used to do several times in repetitive way. Right. Like, for example, we go to the catch, see if the object is there. If it's not there, we go to the database, fetch it from the database, then put it into the catch so the next time we can return it from, from there. The only thing that, that changes most of the times is just the schema, but this wrapper is exactly the same. So it's kind of a pattern that I thought that actually put it in, into this kind of meta programming and, and do something similar like a spring catching it was, uh, was pretty cool. Uh, and actually I can tell you that the, it could be one of the, of the, these key features right now and probably one of the reasons, uh, people start using an Ebolex because of that. It's like a different flavor for, for catching. It's just not calling the, the module directly, like, I don't know, to catch, dot, get, set, or something like that, but you can, you have something else. I feel like the typical way of using something like CacheX in the past for me was you find some place later on that needs to be cached, or maybe if you're smart, you think about it up front before you release it to production. You go in and you modify the function, right? You go in and you say, okay, actually, this list users actually first check the cache or get user maybe first check the cache. And so you're, you, the thing is though, is you're changing your, your actual context function. You're changing the method that originally was not cached. And with code change comes, you know, potential for bugs and breakage and production outages. You know, you, you hope it's tested, but odds are the test has to change too, because you've changed the implementation now and you probably need to either warm the cache or you need to add more tests to test like what happens if the cache is not warmed or if it is. And so you're changing the implementation and the test. But with Nebulex, what I thought was really cool, like they're saying, is you can kind of just decorate it and say, just cache this and here's how you evict it and here's how long to keep it and you're done. And you didn't really change the implementation. And so I think there's pros and cons. That's definitely a pro. A con is like, it's not as customizable. You can't do literally anything like you might do with my previous scenario, but it's really awesome that you can just add a really thin layer of cash where it's needed. And I, I thought that was really cool when I first came across Nebulex. Yeah. And when you, when you decorate it in your test environment, you can set the adapter to be nil <laughs> or the, or the nil adapter. That's cool. You know, you don't have to test that, that the library works because the library is already tested. I love testing the library. Just kidding. No, that's actually really cool. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I do think it's important now. So it's already been said, but I'll say it one more time. It's important that you have both APIs. You have the decorator version of it, which is a simple and, and quick way to, to add all that caching stuff we just talked about. But for those that are adverse to, to, you know, code that's separated like that and, and far away you know, in, in some people's minds, you still also have functions of, you know, getting and setting and all that kind of stuff and setting the TTLs on, you know, programmatically and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So, you, ha so you, you have both ways. You have both ways to set the cache, which is pretty cool. So question for you is like, you, you mentioned this a couple of times that, um, that you, you were very inspired by Ecto. And that reminded me that Ecto is all about these schemas, right? Which are just wrappers around around structs. When you're caching structs, how do you handle structs that change, like from one deploy to the next? Because the next deploy might remove a key or add a key or something like maybe a better example is removing a key. And now 
you have some struct that's been cached, but on the new version of the code now, that's getting that's going to pull down that extra information. Like, how how do you how do you deal with that? And how does Nebulex deal with that? Yeah, actually, I mean, it's inspired by Ecto, but for example, I mean, not entirely. I mean, it's just uh, let's say the the plugin architecture, the, the adapter-based architecture. But, the, I mean, a cache, you can see uh, underneath, it's a kind of a key-value store. Opposite to the database, when the, or Ecto, that you define schemas in the, in a cache, uh, there's no schema. The value could be anything. So, and uh, you explicitly always work with the key and the value. So we never uh, infer the keys from, from schemas or something like that, because uh, when you use catch, Nebulix or any catch, you always uh, explicitly tell what is the key you want to retrieve or write, uh, whatever. Right. So it, it doesn't matter. I mean, if you were working with schemas, the schema itself becomes the value. But still, uh, you have to uh, define or pass the, the key you want to link or store that schema with, some, something like that. So, um, so yeah, I mean, there, there's no, there's no such uh, limitation where, I mean, it, yeah, it's not, it doesn't, it's not attached to the schema thing. Gotcha. Okay. So that's how it avoids that problem of the, of the, of the struct uh, changing from underneath. You're only caching the values that might be in that struct. Exactly. And you tell explicitly the key. And also with the, with the decorators, that might happen if you have a decorator, for example, you know that the powerful of the decorator is that you can say, Hey, the key is going to be, imagine that you are receiving, I don't know, some schema. Uh, and you can tell uh, within the schema, okay, the, the key is going to be schema.id, something like that. If later on uh, it turns out that the, that field doesn't exist, you have to also update the decorator because the, 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 the key is not going to be uh, valid. So, so yeah, uh, it, it's, it depends how you implement it. So, David, I think kind of what you were getting at is that situation where I might say, hey, I, and I, this is just a general problem with serializing Elixir data structures, specifically structs, right? Like if I say, get me, I want to cache user ID one. If it's ETS and I deploy a new app, then the ETS is blown away because it's an in-memory cache. But if it's a persistent cache or that lives outside of my this Beam instance, like in Redis or something like that, for instance, then when my new code loads and I've removed a field from that struct that's been the, the value is the struct, then when it comes back out, I'm going to get an exception because I'm deserializing into something that the code no longer supports. That's a general caching problem. Carlos, have you thought about how we might think about that or, or, or attack that problem? Yeah, actually, one of the that's a, that's a very very common problem, and and that happens when the um, and even even for me because uh, I used uh, a lot the the Redis adapter, and it happens that uh, you, as you are mentioning, even if it's in RAM because the Redis is in RAM, but actually when you redeploy your code, you are not uh, flushing the Redis nodes and so on. So sometimes, yeah, there are something there, and the you might end up with inconsistencies and so on. I mean, there, there are several strategies for, for addressing that. It depends also what kind of data you are storing on the cache and what you are using the cache for. Um, I always say that whatever you put in cache, it shouldn't be critical. But, I mean, uh, because there should be something like your database. If the, the cache is RAM and the RAM can uh, goes away uh, at any time. 
So you shouldn't uh, depend, highly depend on it. O otherwise, you have to change probably the entire design of your application or your system. But if it works that way, I mean, you can, every time you deploy, we have also operations for flushing the cache uh, whenever the application just start and start from scratch. And let's start breaking on demand the, uh, the, the entries from the database again, something like that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's a good point. Uh, if something changes in order to avoid these kind of issues, I mean, we have to be aware of that and, and, and just for sake purposes, it's better just to flush uh, the cache either if it's ready or. If you can easily rewarm the cache and just repopulate it, then yeah, you just, every time you deploy, you might, that might be the, the simplest solution. Just, hey, we're going to have to reload some of the cache. I remember working on a Rails project years ago where it was a very complex project. It was in the education space. Locally, we were running with memcache because this was just a long time ago. <laughs> and I just remember that this app, if I didn't have the caching layer turned on, it would be so dang slow. Like you just watch it like 13 seconds for a page load or something like that. That sounds fun. <laughs> yeah. And then you turn the caching on and it's like, boom, it's so much faster. And a lot of it was because of dynamically building the menu that's available for you as a user, because it has to depend on all the different classes that you're in and all that kind of stuff. It's so many database lookups just to build the structure of the page, really. So caching is a very beneficial thing. It is, it is also joked about as one of those things that's one of the hardest things in computer science is as is caching naming things and caching is like the joke so i think it's admirable one that you've taken this on just because it is a non-trivial problem i just got one more thing to say about this and i'd love to hear some more thoughts of yours but when you mentioned that this is doing distributed things and and not just that but like different ways to have distributed caching right let's go through some of the the, the adapters that nebulex supports this it's mind-blowing, right? There's first the local one, the simple one, right? This is just local for that one instance, right? There's partitioned, there's replicated, there's the multi-level one that you mentioned, where multi-level can be like L1, L2, L3, and each of those could be their own different ways of, of uh, storing things. There's the nil one, which is probably great for, for test environments. You've got the CacheX one uh, that we mentioned earlier. You've got Redis. I've used that one before. And then you've got distributed with, with Horde. So Horde is, be, is a, a way that these, uh, these instances can discover each other. That's, that's a lot of different ways to like implement and like deeply understand how caching can be set up and break and fail, <laughs> uh, but also be, you know, really helpful and useful and like just, just work. So the, like the only one I have real experience there with is, uh, is, is Redis. And I, I have to say, like, it, it's been super easy to, to use. Like, it was it was so simple to, to just set up. I'm, I'm curious to hear from you, like, which one of these adapters has been like, wh wh which one of these was the hardest for <laughs> for you to, to implement? Yeah, that, that's a good question, too, because sometimes it's difficult to, to describe the complexity. I mean, sometimes uh, for me, actually, the, the most challenging one I can tell you by far it has been the replicated one. And actually I have some ideas to somehow rewrite it from scratch in a different way. And next, the, the multi-level one. Uh, the partitioned one, in my sound, yeah, I mean, there's quite a lot of work, but actually somehow it's simpler. Because, for example, with the replicated one, 
Actually, let, let me give you a, a bit of context. Uh, again, uh, I always reference the, the Cameron Porti uh, presenta presentations. And the replicated uh, topology is basically to focus on the rates. When you have a, this kind of catch that you know that 80% of, of, of operations are read operations, it's very nice because read basically it's going to happen locally. You have these, uh, like each node in your, in your cluster. And every time you write to it, that entry is stored locally and is replicated to the rest of the, of the nodes in the cluster. But when you read it, you always are reading it locally. So that's why the read speed is, is probably the, the, the best one, right? There's a lot of complexity on how you guarantee the replication because it doesn't make sense that if you write a value, one node says that the value is three and the other is four and the other is five. I mean, you have to deal with the inconsistencies. So in the very beginning, I, I, I said, okay, but let's take, for example, Nisha as an example. And I checked how Nisha was doing the, the, the replication work and so on. You might say, Hey, but why do we don't use Nisha? I just wanted to, 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 I don't know, to provide something simpler. But end, ended up to being super complex. And actually, yeah, I can tell you later what comes later for, for that adapter. But the story short is that has been super challenging because most of the issues that are reported uh, are most of them uh, related to the replicated catch, uh, some kind of a uh, problem, some kind of issue, because it's very difficult to guarantee that uh, that happens. Imagine uh, even, even more difficult than that. When there is a new node and the, now the, the cluster changes, you need to copy the data because that node has to be aware of that. And this is the, uh, like a downside of that because basically what happens in the adapter is that you have to lock them uh, and you have to basically uh, avoid any kind of operations to avoid the inconsistency. So if the copy of that, uh, may, if that catch takes, I don't know, one minute, uh, the rest of the operations are going to be waiting. But that's the thing, and uh, and actually, and actually, it's uh, it's based on the capturing when you choose for consistency. But it's how the read uh, topology works. You have to ensure consistency. It doesn't make sense to have a replicated catch and have any inconsistent values. It, that doesn't make sense. So that's why it's probably has been the, the most challenging one. I totally get it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, that reminds me of some of your work, Mark, with the Postgres wall reader, right, with Fly and having um, several instances of the app in in different regions and having having uh, the writes go to your primary region, but the reads being replicated and it, and it, it can track it by uh, where where it's at in the in the write ahead log. So that's <laughs> yeah, I, I I could I can guess that that's pretty complex. We might do our listeners a favor and like just briefly describe what each of these each of these adapters do differently, right? So you just described like the replicated one, where you have a lot of instances of your cache that is uh, read replicas, and and then you have a primary write replica. So that's a good description of the replicated one. Partitioned. Let me see if I get this right. The the partitioned one is where you might have a batch of let's just say users, uh, if the users are my object. I might have a batch of users that belong to a certain partition and then another batch of users that belong to a different partition, right? So like there is a probably a partition key. There's some key that signifies which of these, you know, cache batches this belongs to. This might be good for like a regional key, maybe as a, as a way to, to do partitions, or you might just do key by, uh, by date, maybe. 
uh, something along those lines. I can imagine a key like by a company ID or something. Right, company. Yeah. Is does that does that capture what partitioned caches uh, are typically used? Yeah, well, sort of. But in this case, let's say that uh, for uh, from the Nebulix standpoint, uh, the key is just um, we, we don't. The distribution happens based on the distribution algorithm that you're using. Usually, the consistent hash. So, if you're using, I don't know, Kitama or jumping hash or so on, so it basically uh, implements a charting topology. It's it has to do with the distribution model. So partition topology is pretty much having like a charted uh, um, data. Like uh, on each node of the cluster will be in charge of a portion of the data. So when you write a key, uh, that key based on the consistent hash algorithm is going to be written in one of the nodes and so on and so forth. So you don't have actually replicas. That's the downside, actually. If one of the nodes of the cluster goes down, you will lose that part of the data part yeah but mm. it's probably the most scalable distribution model that you can find even in the databases is like at the charting but that's the downside data when when you cannot afford to lose data it's not the the, the right distribution model but with the catch if you can afford because if you you are using the catch only for tracing data it, it makes a lot of sense and and actually it's uh it's highly scalable uh, to me that sounds like a hash ring Right, yeah, where exactly. I, I'm going to hash the value, and that just de that defines which node it gets stored to. And I think that makes a lot of sense, particularly if the things that I'm caching are large or complex to build, and if they're going to take a lot of resources, I don't want them on being cached on every computer. And if the cost of ca of building that cache is somewhat high, then it's worth caching. It's worth doing that work. So that's interesting. Okay, so that thank you for explaining partitioned. Yeah, because I I'd misunderstood that as well. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking that you'd be able to define the key, but that sounds yeah, hash ring sounds sounds like a a good description of it. Okay, so let's let's move on to the next one. Let's skip a uh, multi level for for a moment. We'll go to the nil one. I think that one's pretty simple. It's this is basically a cache that implements the API, but it's not it's not actually caching anything, and this is most helpful for test cases. Is there any other case where you'd want to use that outside of testing? No, I think it was mostly for testing, and actually, it was. Uh, uh, I remember that one of the uh, the members uh, just um, created this issue, saying, "Hey, but we used to have this in Python, this kind of nil adapter, which is it would be nice to to test in." And I said, "Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense." So yeah, let's. Yeah, it, but it's mostly for testing. Yeah, gotcha. All right, and then you have the CacheX adapter. Tell tell me uh, about this one. That one I was introducing on version two. And uh, I, I mean, uh, again, for me, having something like Netflix and not being able to use this great library because CACHEX is, is very, very well implemented. It's a very nice library. So, I mean, it, it shouldn't be possible. So I said, so then the next step is we should create or give the, the user the ability to, to change the local adapter. And catch is pretty much like a, I mean, usually it's mostly used for local catch. It, it has some sort of distributed way to work, but it was to give the users that ability to, okay, I love catchics and I want to continue using catchics, but at the same time, I like, I don't know, the other features of Nebulex, like the decorators and so on. So you can do that. Actually, you can decorate your functions and, the, and your catch underneath it could be catchics. 
And it's super simple. If you see the implementation of the CACHEX adapter, it's very simple because the, the API itself is very similar. So the functions underneath are, is pretty much like uh, bypassing the the, 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 uh, the arguments and just calling CACHEX directly, pretty much. All right. And then speaking of like underlying strategies there, so CACHEX is one. The next one is Redis. So a lot of applications might already have Redis in their, you know, in their infrastructure and they're using that for caching right now, right? Redis can be used for a lot of things, but it's typically reached for first as a caching mechanism across different nodes. So you, you might have 10 instances of your, your app running, but they're all typically connected to the same Redis instance. So, so tell me about this, this adapter. What is uh, Nebulix uh, doing here for Redis? This one was available since the version one, and uh, and the idea was to, I mean, Redis, as you know, it's uh, probably one of the most used stores out there, uh, not only for caching, but uh, as a database right now. Even myself, I was using Redis, so it was important to to launch the library also with something like Redis as a feature that uh, allows me to even implement these uh, distributed topologies. So instead of using, for example, the partition adapter, I could easily use Redis for that. And I would say that that might even work. Um, it depends on the case, but Redis uh, has the distribution part uh, out of the box. You know that Redis, you can enable the Redis cluster mode. You have libraries like Twin Proxy, Envoy to also uh, implement some kind of charging topology. And the adapter also gives you the chance to have this sort of client charting uh, distributed topology as well, similar to the partition adapter, but uh, in this case, the nodes are going to be the Redis one, let's say, right? So yeah, I mean, the, the Redis is, uh, I would say that it's, uh, despite it's an adapter and it has its own repository, it's one of the core components of, of Netflix. Uh, and it's probably the most used adapter out there, even more than the local one. I would say, because most of the requests and, and also issues uh, and features uh, are around the Netflix adapter. Sorry, the, the Redis adapter. Well, Redis is a great tool. So it's a, good, it's a great tool to, to pair with Elixir apps even. But I imagine that a lot, of, a lot of companies might have like Redis already in their infrastructure and they have like a service that's in Elixir. And so instead of like going native Elixir caching kind of stuff, right? They just decide to use the existing infrastructure like Redis and then let Redis take care of clustering, right? They might have a, a, a managed Redis cluster so they don't have to worry about that as much versus like bringing it more in-app with Nebulex and all the other other strategies that you have here. So that's that sounds cool. Also, because I would say that it depends on the, the magnitude of the data you are storing, because you know that with the partition adapter, yes, you have the cache pretty much built in with your application. But we have to keep in mind that the application is sharing the memory with the, with the cache. So that could be a problem depending on, on, on the data you are storing, how much data you are storing there. So, and this is where, again, the distributed caching patterns come in. And this is what we call the, the catch servers. So it's like a separate the catch in, in isolated servers, not sharing the, the memory with your application. That also gives you like other benefits. So yeah, again, it, it depends. And also with Nebula, sorry, with Redis, you can implement easily the, uh, the, the partition topology. You can have even the multi, uh, the multi-level topology with Redis is also like a nice feature. So yeah. I'm hearing a lot of concepts here, kind of like all merging together, but you've got a storage adapter, you've got your 
like strategy for how to 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 cache you can have a partition strategy or or a multi-level strategy but it but underneath the storage is actually using you know ets or or redis or something along those lines so speaking of oh we've got so it's two more cache adapters here to 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 cover is a distributed with horde tell me a little bit about this one when when is this one handy well, actually, uh, I didn't write that one. Uh, that one was a contribution. Actually, it was added uh, probably uh, some few months ago. I don't know much about it. I need to check, but it was interesting. I mean, uh, I think that the more adapters we can offer, the better. The idea is to give that flexibility to the users. So, I mean, uh, if if is there is there should be like a use case for it. Uh, I haven't used it honestly. So it was one of the community contributions, let's say that. That one didn't come from me, actually. (laughs) What I think is interesting about that is just that you're showing that the adapter pattern works well, that you're able to create something completely custom that is a good fit for your situation. I have one more question, though. If I can mix and match these, like I might say, you know, I have some things that I want to be in Redis, but then I have some stuff that I just want to be in memory, like with CacheX. Is there a way that I can do two different implementations of Nebulex or, or however that would work. Like I'm running two adapters. I just want to, I just want to make it really complicated. Yeah. That might be a good lead in <laughs> into the last one too, the, the multi-level adapter here. Ah, uh, yeah. Exactly. It, it depends because actually the, the multi-level uh, overall, it looks like a, it's the same catch, but the example that you are mentioning, for me, it's like a different use case. Uh, and yeah, you can achieve that with Nebulix because you can define, uh, for example, uh, in the same, just doing the analogy with Ecto. Uh, imagine that you define, in, instead of two repos, you define two cache uh, modules, one with the Redis adapter and another one with the local adapter. And you have now two modules that explicitly you can call, okay, this data goes to the, to the local and this data goes to Redis. And even if you want to do something more, let's say, complex about it, you can even write your own wrapper module based on some kind of pattern match thing, decide whether the data goes to local or Redis and so on. Now, the multi-level is when it's actually taking this pattern. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure if it comes from hardware, but I always mention the, I always do the, the, the reference to, to the hardware. But if you see, one of the main things that microprocessors started to do to boost performance was actually catch. And it's like a huge thing uh, now in the microprocessors too. It's, it has its own uh, distributed networks, how the they catch worked and, and so on. So in, in the computing systems, you know that they usually work with the L1 and L2. Right when the L1 is uh, basically the the catch that it's within the microprocessor itself, but the L2 could be the RAM and the L3 could be the disk. It's basically taking that that approach that you can you can build that kind of topology as well. So you can have like a L1 to put the data in your in-memory cache, but also the the L2 that could be Redis, for example, because I don't want to go to Redis every time. So I just go to Redis, but the next time it will be on the on my local cache. So I um, they take it from there. So it's basically to address that kind of uh, architecture. They, in the topologies, this is what is called or, or is known as a near topology. It's like a combining the, the partition with the local. Wow. Okay. 
So, so just to recap everything that we just talked about, you've got a bazillion adapters on how to cache things and, and, and working with the existing ecosystem like CacheX and, and, and Horde now, you know, and Ets, of course, all these different ways to, to store, you know, data in a, in a quick manner, aka the cache. So like Nebulex is accomplishing a hugely complicated thing and providing a very easy two ways, actually two APIs for caching and, 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 and retrieving stuff from, from the cache. So that's like a humongous achievement. So if you haven't gotten yourself a cake, you should get yourself a cake. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you guys. That makes me wonder then, like with this huge accomplishment under your belt, you know, this is a, a pretty critical piece of the, of the Elixir ecosystem, I would say. So I don't know if you've heard that before, but you should realize that, that like, this is, this is very important, right? Caching is, is common to a lot of applications and it's, Incredible that the, the all the different ways you've adapted it to these these backends. What else are you doing, or what's next for Nebulex? I've been working on the version three, which I expect to launch the first release candidate by end of March next year. It's been delayed because I, I've had a lot of work, but but the version three is ongoing, and actually I've made uh, a lot of progress. Uh, I think it's going to be. It's going to bring a lot of a lot of features, new features, also improved adapters, maybe new ones. But the most important thing is that there is going to be a big change, breaking change on the API itself. Because one of the things that the community have asked, actually, I remember that we had the discussion about the ability to, for example, handling the errors. Since Nebulex was inspired by Ecto, you see that Ecto in the in the Ecto API, you have these. Uh, banked functions that write exceptions, but also you have the, the functions to that uh, returns the OK error tuples. But it turns out, if you, if you see, those OK error tuples are usually related to the chain set, and that has to do with the, with the data, right? But if the database is down, it crashes. It tries as an exception. It's not going to to give you like a like an error tuple to to handle if Postgres is is rising is is throwing errors or something like that, right? So I said, yeah. I mean, from the from the catch perspective, I mean, if something happened with the with the catch, it, it should just uh, just failed. I mean, it, it especially if you are working with the ETS and so on because it it was inspired in the very beginning because of that. But the committee was also Maybe uh, asking for for this. Maybe if we if we could somehow handle the errors, and I said maybe with the catch is a bit different uh, than the database, you know, because with the database, yeah, the database is one thing, but with the catch, probably we don't want to be that strict. Let's say if, for example, if Redis is down, uh, it's not my main storage, so I just want to log the error and maybe skip it and just continue my my logic, and that makes a lot of sense. So that made me think or rethink the API. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense though. So probably, yeah, we should give that possibility on the API to uh, to have this OKR error toppled API as well as the bank functions. So that is coming for, for the version three. We're going to have, let's say, like a more flexible API uh, for handling errors and so on. And also with the annotations, with the with the with the decorators, I, I th- since it's one of the key features, uh, the idea is to, uh, there will be new options and features there to customize it even even more. Because yeah, it's as you mentioned before, is limited. So the idea is 
at least to provide more ways to customize it and, and, and make it even easier. And finally, I, I would say the, the adapters. I want to put a lot of effort on the Redis adapter. The, the idea on the Redis adapter is to make a, like a very, very resilient and yeah, good adapter because it's probably the, the, the most used one, especially with the Redis cluster mode. Because, I mean, that also was quite challenging because the problem with Redis is that this is not completely out of the box. So the cluster itself works. It's handled by Redis, but actually you have to handle the part of the, of the distribution. You know that the, this is, uh, when you connect to Redis, you have to ask for the cluster slots. And with the cluster slots, you need to, uh, it's, it's tell you, Hey, this is the portions of the kit that is armed in this node and this node and, and so on and so forth. And based on that, you, in your client, in your library, you have to decide what node you want to, to call to, to, to do that. So so it's not entirely out of the box. So that's actually one of the of the things that the adapter handles for you. But you want to improve that part. So we will see improvements also on the on the Redis adapter. So you'd already had some contributions to the library, like the Horde adapter. Are you looking for other people to contribute and get involved with some of these changes? That would be great. I mean, uh, it's uh, I mean, people is always welcome to contribute. But actually, I'm uh, right now uh, speaking with some friends and colleagues uh, to maybe, let's say, having more uh, maintainers, uh, contributors. You know that the idea is to. I mean, it's it's welcome to to anyone to contribute. But one of the challenges part when you have a project that actually started uh, getting some traction and it's been used, I mean, it's quite demanding time. The community contributes, but let's say the core features, uh, normally I have to implement them. So I want to maybe uh, have some group of people that uh, help me with that so we can, I don't know, speed things up a little bit more. But yeah, that, that would be that would be great. Yeah, that's the idea is to increase that that community and uh, even the contributors. Another thing that I thought was just cool is the way you were doing the decorators. I realized you're using a library called Decorator, which I think is just worth pointing out because if other people say, "Hey, that's an interesting pattern," then just be aware that hey, Decorator is an, another project that can help you do that same kind of thing with other projects in code. That's uh, that's that's true. Yeah, that's a very cool project. Yeah. Awesome. Well, if people want to get in touch with you or follow the project online, where should they go to do that? Uh, I think that uh, mostly the GitHub, I mean, where you have some suggestions, issues. Yeah, it's just to create a ticket for it. Also, my information is on the on my GitHub profile, so you can find uh, my blog and my even my emails or something. So, so, yeah. Cool. And we'll have links to some of that in the show notes as well. Well, thank you, Carlos. I appreciate your time. And But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.